Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. So you have a goal, you work for the goal, you get the goal. Then it turns out that the goal isn't what you thought and you're disappointed. Familiar, right? Let's do it the opposite way. You have a goal, you work for the goal, you get the goal. The goal is exactly what you thought it would be and you're disappointed. Why does that also sound familiar? There's a reason. Before we get to it, remember where we are in the story. The world is broken. Fraudsters are parading around as psychics being showered with attention and money from the media, from the government, from academia, and full of teenage fury, two boys set out to reveal the truth. They're going to pretend to be psychics at a college trying to prove that psychics are real. They want to show how easy academics are to fool. They want to be hailed as heroes of rationality, and they want to correct the course of history. The world is broken, and they're here to right the ship. But something happens on the way to their goal. They realize that being undercover is not as easy as it seems. They're now friends with the academics that they're there to trick. And it's hard work. And it gets less and less fun. And in this chapter, we're going to show you the exact moment everything goes to hell. But before that, back to disappointment. There's a very good reason that you have that empty feeling at the end of a journey, no matter how it ends up. Neurotransmitters, specifically dopamine. Dopamine is a dangerous, fickle mistress. This is science, yes, but for me, it's also personal. Give me a few minutes, let me tell you a short story. In January of 2015, I was objectively having my greatest moment of success. A goal in my heart, the spark that drove me, an actual TV show with my ideas and me as the host was going to happen and not just anywhere, but on National Geographic, something to be proud of for the ages, the beginning of a franchise. Shooting that show was brutal. I moved away from my family to Los Angeles for months. I went back home in November, exhausted. It's hard 
to make anything. It's hard to make so many people happy, but it was worth it. This is the process. This is what you do. And by mid-December, I knew that every person in my life was cheering for me. I woke up, and for the first time in decades, I had a day to fill with anything I wanted. I had no obligations, and everybody was fine with it. And that's the moment it happened. Scientists call this an intrusive thought. But I remember standing in my closet saying, well, what are we going to do today, Brian? You can do anything you want. You want to eat some food? Go to lunch? You want to play a video game? You want to eat a bullet? What? Where did that come from? And the other part of my brain said, I don't know, you won. You finished the main quest. It's what you lived your whole life for, wasn't it? You did it. Why are you still doing it? That was a private, intrusive thought that lived in my mind. And I understood the brain chemistry of where it comes from. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that controls reward-motivated behavior. It's the brain chemical that makes you complete the task, whatever that task is. When a big wave of dopamine comes in, it has to recede. And when that tide goes out, that's when you discover the demons in the undertow. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was saying it out loud to people I cared about. I remember walking down the street and realizing that I'm not in the business of keeping secrets. So I shared it with my wife. And then I had to do the hard work of unpacking that thought, of having the audacity to start making new goals. And it was only after I had made new goals. It was only after I realized that there were so many more stories to tell. It was only after beginning another journey that I felt that tickle of drive coming back. And I remembered that it's my job to be here for my kids, for my family. When we last left Project Alpha, our two boys had just realized that their actions have real consequences. The staff at the Mac Lab, they're not just faceless henchmen who could be humiliated for the greater good. They're people. People who seem to love them. And for the first time, they're now beginning to regret what they're doing, drip by drip. But for every weekend, they come back and keep up the facade. The Mac Lab continues to believe, and they all work together for the big reward. Real scientific proof that psychic phenomenon exists. Dopamine flooding their shoreline. 
But what happens when it all rushes back out to sea? We are deceiving friends. We are lying to friends. We knew that these people were going to hate us. The boys are about to get a look at the worst case scenario in one of the most terrifying spectacles we've ever talked about on this program. Deception, mechanical and cosmic. When you're robbed of hope, emptiness fills you. And it's the empty people who have nothing left to lose. All of this in what might just be the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con brought to you by, actually, let's start here. Audible.com, Amazon.com. This is where great stories live. And among my favorites, the bestseller, The Naturalist by Andrew Main. Enter the world of Theo Cray, a computational biologist who has a unique gift for finding patterns where others see only chaos. Get this. Mutilated bodies are discovered deep inside the Montana woods. Local police, they find themselves grasping at straws. But Theo uncovers something they missed. Something unnatural. And only he can stop it. With time running out, Theo must stay one step ahead of the authorities while using his scientific prowess to unmask the true killer. The question remains, can he become as cunning as the predator he's hunting? Or will he ultimately become the prey? Don't miss The Naturalist. It's the thrilling introduction to the Theo Cray series, one of my favorite books, and it's by Wall Street Journal bestseller Andrew Main. Read it now at Amazon.com and get the audiobook at Audible.com. Mike and Steve are the all-stars of the Mac Lab, but the same public notices that attracted them attracted everybody. Mike and Steve may not say this, but I'm going to call them what they are. Weirdos. By the name of uh, Tom Richards, who claimed that ghosts and spirits were knocking out raps and communicating with him, turned out to be a really scary dude. This guy is far more sinister than your garden-variety hoaxer. He basically said that he could communicate with the dead. Richards had taken a liking to me because I was just doing anything and everything. He would have sealed bottles, and things would be in the bottles, and writing would appear on things. So at one time, we're at that Mac Lab, and I wanted nothing to do with Richards because I felt like he was going to get caught. So he takes a bottle, and it's got a piece of card in it, and it's got a pencil, and it's got uh, some pipe cleaners in it. Takes it, takes it, shows it, you know, then walks over to a shelf, puts it up with the, the paper on the back and says, hey, Steve, concentrate on it in front of the scientists. And I concentrate on it because here I am doing this. And uh, when he turns it around, the stick figures had now turned into a, uh, a little man. And there was letters, PSA, written now on the paper. After he was gone, I, did, I didn't want anything to do with this. I told the scientists, I said, hey, you know, the pencil that he showed in the beginning was was a, it was green you know there was green on it the pencil he showed afterwards was amber 
I think he switched bottles and he's trying to give me credit for it because I felt like I had no power when I was doing this and usually I would know if something was happening. Yes, our boys want to be the only people to embarrass the Mac Lab. Yes, the boys don't want some random hack psychic to defraud their friend Peter Phillips. So how do they react when somebody who's not only weird but also not very good at magic tries to shoot that gap? He was staying at Peter Phillips' house when we were staying at Peter Phillips' house. He had his bedroom, bedroom door was wide open, he wasn't there. Mike and I, yeah, we go into the room. We know this guy's a con man. So we go, hey, can we find anything to prove it? His suitcase is open. We look and we go and we dig around a little bit. He's got two guns in there. But they're not just guns, they are cocked, ready to fire. Like if you go through the case, they could possibly go off. That's how bad this guy was. With the fraud defended, the boys continue. Did that change we, anything for you guys? Uh, not really. No, I mean, we were young. We were invincible, you know, yeah, sure. and it was more of, yep, right about this guy, you know. Our first episode was all about the insane world that created this opportunity for Project Alpha to embarrass the entire field of parapsychology. Last episode, we learned how these two rivals became brothers, how they punched way above their weights and then realized they might have bitten off more than they could chew. This episode, we're going to look closer at the Mac Lab itself, and we're going to analyze some of the devious work that Mike and Steve employed to fool them. But before we go any farther, you must understand one thing about magic. Magicians love surprises. I'm doing air quotes, you can't see them. We love surprises because every surprise that happens to a magician almost certainly we've encountered before and we have the exact right zinger or the right backup plan to handle it. Nested recursive operations, each one getting farther and farther out into the weeds so that to the spectator, it looks like everything was a free choice. The magician is prepared for any of them. We hate surprises. Capital S surprises. Things we've never encountered before. And it's why Project Alpha is so remarkable. I share all of this because you must understand that to Mike and Steve, being locked in a room with no control over virtually anything, with the rules changing daily, this is the magician's hell. And it's also why some of the most brilliant ideas in the history of the art are forged in this crucible. Now, the boys have a creeping regret after the psychic hurricane stunt, but that doesn't mean they don't have to go to work when they get flown out to St. Louis. And of course, by go to work, I mean pretend to be psychic under observed scientific conditions. Every session, the boys are brought into a room, the video recordings start, and they're told what the experiment will be. Maybe yesterday it was a loose rod hanging from the center of a bell jar, placed in the middle of a table, preventing any influence from the outside. Their job as a psychic is to move it with their mind. Now, of course, Mike and Steve are not real psychics. They have to fool people they genuinely like and appreciate with magic they can't control. It's all capital S surprises. 
So they now have a magic trick that they have to invent right now, and it's up to them to channel genius on the spot. No BS. I could think of maybe a handful of magicians on the planet who could thrive under these circumstances now. And yet these boys, these kids, they did it over and over and over again. And they put the bell jar over and it sat on, you know, on a tray and I was to concentrate. They said, can you make it move to the left? And I'd make it move to the left after a few seconds. Can you make it move to the right? I'd make it move to the right after a few seconds. I found out that if I took the, and again, I'm controlling the experiment. If I took the glass and I put it on top, I could put it in such a way that it was tilted just very slightly that I could now blow underneath it one direction or I could blow the other direction. Legend, you got it. Knock Beljar off the list. You invented a new trick and you are set. Except that next weekend, back at the Mac Lab, they got to do it again. Only this time, the base of the Beljar is coated in aluminum foil. The first method won't work anymore. So Steve improvises again. Later on, they put foil over it to make sure it would fit snugly. But when they weren't looking and they were at lunch, I took a little piece of tin foil, made a little ball, stuck it down underneath the foil in the groove. So now even they could put it on top and I would still have that hole. Now, the boys do have one thing going for them. When the rules keep changing, they're not entirely shocked by it. They know it's coming. Because they know an intermediary is telling the Mac Lab to keep making things harder. That intermediary? James Randy, magician and investigator of psychic phenomena. Every night after Mike and Steve are done with the Mac Lab, they call Randy. They tell him exactly what they did. And Randy goes to work figuring out what the Mac Lab could do to make sure it could never happen again. Last episode, we saw the boys swimming in hubris. And you can see it again as they begin to make these long-distance phone calls to James the Amazing Randy from Peter Phillips's house using Phillips's phone. Quick side note, if you weren't alive in the 80s, oh boy, long-distance was a thing. 50 cents, a dollar per minute, and every single phone call would be documented month after month. Which means that every month, Peter Phillips got documented proof that there were strange calls made to New Jersey after every session that the boys were in town. It looks like Phillips never noticed. And if he did, he certainly didn't say anything about it, never brought it up in his relationship with Mike and Steve or with the Mac Lab. But meanwhile, Phillips is definitely reading the letters he received from Randy in 1980, including a list of precautions that should be taken every single time the Mac Lab does experiments. Number one, and I quote, do not allow the subject to alter the rules established for the tests. Such changes work to the advantages of the subject. Two, in reports both written and verbal, always note any and all changes in protocol, no matter how trivial. Three, never assume that a previous track record or assurances of honesty, integrity, or reliability cancel out the need for control of the subject. Four, in all reports, make sure the statements are scrupulously careful. Five, examine all specimens used from time to time to determine that they have not been tampered with during lax periods in experimentation. Six, never allow the subject to choose from among a great number of objects or samples during the experiments. 
Seven, do not accept excuses. For example, the vibrations aren't right or I don't feel right about this test as valid reasons for balking at a well-designed and controlled test. This is a prime reason to suspect that the design and control were too good for trickery. Eight, above all, a conjurer experienced in such matters should always be present. Nine, do not assume that you as a scientist are capable of detecting trickery merely by designing the experiment. Ten, conduct all experiments with the conviction that children will cheat when they can And 11, do not agree to what appear to be trivial and or temperamental behavior patterns from the subjects. Stated plainly, don't let the subjects change a single thing. Assume at all times that they're going to deceive you. You don't know if they're bad actors or not. And as a scientist, you are not qualified to catch them if you knew it. You need a conjurer. And we know this is good advice because the Mac Lab has two of them. Mike and Steve smelled trouble. With Mr. Two Guns, I talked to dead people that hopefully I'm not the one who made dead. When you have conjurers sniffing around for magic methods, they see it coming a mile away. And any proper investigation needs this. Randy's thoughtful prescription on how to stop deception cold in its tracks would arrive by mail after every session And it was completely ignored. If you're James Randi and your whole goal is to warn the scientists of the fraudsters, how do you feel about this? Are you disappointed because they're not listening? Or does some part of you start rubbing your hands together because you know that every ignored letter is going to result in an even bigger reveal? James Randi is sounding the alarm, and it looks an awful lot like nobody's paying attention. Look at the first interim report written by the Mac Lab on February 17th, 1980. Quote, During the final session, a strong feeling of resistance was experienced by the subjects. M.E., that's Mike Edwards, in particular, felt he could not work with this, quote, oppressive cloud present in the room and asked if he could leave for a few minutes. A break was taken by all, a time during which a decision was made by PRP, that's Phillips, and the subjects to try working on only one subject. It was hoped that by working in this manner, the possibility of negative presences could be identified and eliminated. While working in this manner, M.E., Mike Edwards, succeeded in bending a fork. By my math, that's a violation of rules one, do not let the subjects alter the experiment, and seven, do not change an experiment because of bad vibes. And that's just what they confess to in writing. In that report, there's a page and a half description of psychic activity performed by Mike and Steve outside of the lab. Weirdly, it looks like the Mac Lab never raised an eyebrow as to how Randy knew what experiment they were giving to Mike and Steve at least until the final year of Project Alpha. So we're a few weekends in, and the Mac Lab has had its fill of all this macro-psychic phenomenon, the spontaneous psychokinesis around the house, the bent spoons, even the psychic hurricane that happened at the Mac Lab. It's time to publish or perish. They need big results recorded or else. Time to get these psychic phenoms measured for peer review. 
But to make the paper sing, what Phillips needed was more of the very precise and specific demonstrations. The stuff that's done under fire that can be measured to the single millimeter. The MacLab team is ready to bring their findings to the world and to legitimize parapsychology once and for all. So instead of just laying a bunch of stuff out for Mike and Steve, they start doing smaller experiments with very precisely recordable results. As I'm sure you can guess, this brings them fewer and fewer positives in general, and certainly fewer of those eye-popping, jaw-dropping moments that they had at the beginning. And so, Peter Phillips begins to blame himself. And it can't be the boys, right? They genuinely have psychic powers. I saw it. You saw it. We all saw it. It must be me. It must be Phillips who can't harness it. Okay, all right. If psychic phenomenon is thrown off by bad vibes, Phillips determines that maybe he's the bummer. He's the dad showing up at the high school keg party. What Mike and Steve need to really thrive, somebody younger. Peter Phillips is a believer. He's a believer in what he saw, but more importantly, he's a believer in Mike and Steve. He's rooting for them. Phillips doesn't have any kids, but this is a paternalistic gesture to these two young men, sacrificing his own ego so that they might succeed. Enter Mike Schaefer, a sixth-year doctoral student from UC Irvine with a master's in social sciences. He's closer to Mike and Steve's age. Yeah, that'll work. He's going to bring in younger PhDs to help administer the tests. He's also teaching courses through the 81 Washington University fall semester. Courses like parapsychology and survival after death. They, when they came in, they started going, okay, maybe these guys have other abilities. So in other words, he already believed we had the ability to bend metal, but he wanted to find out what other abilities they had. Like, they introduced a fuse box, and this is a box where they put a current through it and they put a fuse in it. I found out that if I pressed down on my thumb in a certain way, it would break the connection, so it appears the fuse is broken. And when, the, when that goes off, then you have to turn the switch back on to put a current through it again, right? It automatically goes off. So I could take that fuse out, hand it over for one that had already been blown. And so I was able to blow the fuse. They would give us a sealed picture in a uh, padded mailing envelope. And it was sealed at the side. It was stapled at the side. They would put us in a quiet room by ourselves in the dark, and they would project four pictures on the wall. You need to try to figure out what picture is in that envelope. What I realized is that they're staples. You can bend staples open. And so I'd bend them open, pull the staples out, stick them in my mouth, pull the picture out so I could look at it, put it back in. Pattern works really well until the time you're putting it back in and you get two of them in. You go, <coughs> are you ready? Yeah, yeah, come on in. I think it was the sailboat. I can't be right on this one. Right. Right? And then I opened the envelope. They don't see that the other two staples are missing because I opened it. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that, am I? This, that's okay, you didn't get it right anyway. I would hold up a fork or a spoon, and I would hold it up, concentrate on it, and nothing would happen. I'd say, this tag's in my way, can I take it off? And I'd go, yeah, no problem. Concentrate on the fork, nothing would happen. I would put the fork down, but I wouldn't put the tag on it. I would pick up another fork or spoon, take the tag off, put that down next to the other tag, concentrate, nothing would happen. 
when I put the tags on, I would separate them, right? I would put the A on the, on the B fork and yeah. B on the A fork, right? Put those down. And then an hour would go by. We would do nothing with those. Nothing. And then maybe after an hour of sitting there and they're taping the whole time, I would pick one of those up. I would concentrate and I would say, I think something happened, but I'm not sure. Can you measure it? Now they measure it, and it would be just a few millimeters difference. All this time, the boys are going back and forth with Randy, who continues to offer them advice and instruction on what to do next time they head to St. Louis. In fact, when Randy hears from Mike about the drunken psychic hurricane escapade, specifically Steve carving his initials into the coffee grounds, he admonishes the boys to be more careful, ending his letter with a curt, let's cool it a bit. A stern fatherly warning. Don't get over your skis. You'll regret it later. All of this is in preparation for the Mac Lab to go public with their findings at the 1981 Annual Convention of the Parapsychological Association in Syracuse, New York. The Mac Lab sent a research brief to Mike Edwards, and the words were very, very clear. All the experiments to be presented to the gathering of other researchers is detailed in an academic fashion And all of it is taken at face value. This part's important. They flatly state this stuff works and it's real. Because the Mac Lab bombs in upstate New York. Now remember, our boys themselves are not there, but their work is presented as evidence of psychic phenomenon and it's given a very chilly and critical response by all of the assembled researchers. Furthermore, when Randy sees the tape they presented there... He eviscerates it point by point on why the experiments were faulty from the beginning and how each and every one of the psychic feats could be achieved using trickery. He sends his excoriating review to Phillips. Quote, the nine samples shown are flawed and they need not to have been if proper care had been taken. In response to this letter, Phillips and Schaefer alter their paper. This time they add wiggle words like presumed and apparent before any description of psychic phenomenon. Schaefer and Phillips take a pause because their own community is pointing out that some of these experiments aren't as airtight as they should be. In this moment, you gotta wonder why not just wash them out? I mean, if we're really just dealing with a cold scientific process and the people you're trying to champion as psychic haven't met muster? Why keep trying? And of course, the answer is the Mac Lab has invested in these two. These researchers are making their own careers. And to admit failure would be to admit that they were wrong. And they are believers. They do think there's something here. What's more? It's around this time that the Mac Lab starts to hear rumors. Two, to be precise. Rumor number one is the scary one. It's the truth. The rumor is Mike and Steve are working with James the Amazing Randy to embarrass the Mac Lab. The second rumor is a red herring. That's the rumor that Randy, the boys, and the Mac Lab are all working together to embarrass the entire concept of parapsychology. The next time they get together, the Mac Lab shares the rumors with the boys. Now, keep in mind, the agreement between everybody involved in Project Alpha is very simple. If you are asked if you are a magician, if you are asked if you are conning somebody, if you are asked if you are working with James Randi, you must admit it. Game over. You're done. But remember, 
During this time, the boys have become beloved amongst the senior staff. They're given books as gifts. Phillips tries to help get Mike admitted to Washington University. I don't know if they're thinking this right now, but I got to imagine if there's ever going to be a moment where these two are going to be able to own their own deception honestly, this is it. If the Mac Lab asks them the right question. Just one simple question and all of this could be over. Please just ask out loud. Say, these rumors aren't true, are they? And this is the moment of truth. Let me go, okay. I said, well, the first rumor is that you and Mike are working with Randy to fool us. And both Mike and I in the back of our heads go, all right, this is the time we have to come clean. But before we can even come clean, they're laughing. And we're trying to figure out why they're laughing. And they, they're saying that's ridiculous, but we're already even more ridiculous rumor. And it's we, the parapsychologists, are working with Randy to fool the rest of the parapsychology convention. So they laughed about that too. So it was more like telling us about the rumors than asking us about the rumors. So the band plays on. I think we started having moments of regret when there were there were there were too many things going on all credit to the mac lab after syracuse the tests get a lot tighter maybe the boys are getting less excited or maybe the mac lab is finally strict enough to prevent even the most talented tricksters either way mike and steve begin to produce fewer and fewer results But a funny thing happened at Syracuse. Yes, Mike and Steve's scientific proof didn't go over well, but it did reveal their existence. And so other researchers come calling. Along with that, opportunities to become celebrities in the parapsychological universe. The BBC comes calling, asking to feature them on television. Steve gets written up in the National Enquirer, the same place that Mike first found out about the Mac Lab. When the reporter from the National Enquirer is watching a tape of Steve performing at the Mac Lab, it happens to be a moment where Steve's invisible thread breaks. Right, magic jargon. Invisible thread is not technically invisible, but it's hard to market something as very hard to see thread. You put it between your fingers, and if you move your fingers over things, it looks like the things are moving. But really, it's, you get it. He's busted. And what does Steve do? Yeah, it looks like you have something between your hands and moving forward and moving back. I go, yeah, what do you think? Of course, I imagine there's some force between my two hands <laughs> where I go forward, I go over, and then I come back. And I, oh, that makes sense. Total Chad. Mike gets the Inquirer treatment a few months later. By 1982, a new researcher at the Mac Lab is writing letters to Mike calling their results, quote, very encouraging. Huh. So another year passes. Another year of lying. Another year of looking into the faces of friends and knowing you're a fraud. Another year of a righteous teenage quest being followed through by two young men who, quite frankly, are over it. They keep on going until one fall in Madison, Wisconsin in 1982. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are two big conferences in our story. The first one in Syracuse is a small academic conference and the boys aren't even there. And then there's Madison. The second big conference in our story is organized by another parapsychology researcher who had taken an interest in Mike specifically. Mike and Steve are scheduled as guests along with another Japanese metal bender, Masawaki Kyoto. What's more, Yuri Geller himself is going to be in attendance at this conference demonstrating his ability to everyone. All the players are there but one. And this turns out to be an event that Randy just can't miss. Ever the eccentric, ever the showman, he decides wisely against a crude gate crashing. No, no, no. James Randy's going to be there, but he's going to go undercover. You can hear me smiling as I tell you this. Using the name Adam Jerson, an anagram for James Randy. So on the nose! He puts on a truly ridiculous wig, these false teeth, and sports a fake gut. At the conference, the boys immediately mark him. And so he shows up in Madison, Wisconsin, in this brown leisure suit that looked like it had been dug out of a Salvation Army reject pile. Um, he had his his normal um, silver white silver white beard. Um, dyed brown he had on this brown afro fright wig as, as he even liked to describe it and he had artificial kind of buck teeth we're sitting in the lobby of this hotel steve and i know we know about when he's going to come in and should be checking into the hotel and all of a sudden we're sitting there and i don't remember who notices him first but one of us says to the other there he is and we watch as he goes to over to the lobby. We're trying not to stare, but we're watching. It's like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. We're going to go get on that elevator with him. And so Steve and I kind of sneak, sneak in right there, right in front of him. And I don't even look back. And I said, uh, floor? And he said, uh, five. Push five. And then he says, you guys aren't very observant, are you? And I just broke down laughing. I said, why do you think we're standing here? (laughs) 
This conference is a whirlwind, but possibly even more exciting is the fact that Mike and Steve have been contacted by BBC Science. The producer wants the boys to be tested on the standard for British television. The producer even agrees to take on all of Adam, I mean, James Randi's protocols. Those same protocols that the Mac Lab dismissed. Mike and Steve are watching Yuri Geller perform. Randy and his truly insane wig look on as well. Think back to that moment of Steve growing up in South Africa. The moment you first met him here. Geller was on the radio telling him he could bend metal. Steve believed him and comes to realize that Geller is a fraud and sets out to be better at bending metal than Geller and to use his powers for good. He wanted to be better than Geller in every sense of the word. And in this moment, watching Geller, Steve realizes he's done it. God, can't they see that? Can't they see he just bent that with his hand? Like literally just bent that with his hand? Can't they see that when the person's writing on the blackboard and he's holding up a big sheet in front of him, he's turning his head slowly, slowly, slowly to he, he can actually see the board. Like I'm looking, I'm going, he's looking at the freaking board. But they're believers. They wanted to believe so much that he could do anything, get away with anything, because even if it looked like trickery, no, Geller's not a trickster. There's absolutely no way. Rumors get out that the mysterious parapsychologist Adam Gerson may in fact be the villainous James Randi in disguise. And of course, it's all true. And in classic James Randi fashion, there's a grand unmasking. But skullduggery, said someone in the back, probably, while he angrily lit another cigarette for his child. Jokes aside, it is total bedlam. Anybody who was there remembers this as the defining, most bonkers moment of the entire convention. But you're here with me, and I'm here to tell you that this is nothing compared to what you're about to hear. We're here with Mike and Steve and Masawaki Kyoto. They're in a room with a producer from the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, the scientific voice of authority, and he is here to get the evidence, the real evidence, that's going to prove one of his most deeply held beliefs. And the three of them, with the cameras rolling and following Randy's very strict protocols, are not able to do anything interesting at all. After a full day of trying to summon something supernatural, it's getting late. And our BBC producer, who by God followed the rules, who wants this to succeed, who wants to see something bigger than this dumb, stupid world, he finds out what following the rules gets you. Nothing. He's got nothing. Imagine the disappointment of traveling halfway around the world to see a miracle and going home empty-handed. He faces the camera, he does his sign-off, and his crew begins packing up all the equipment. When? Comes in front of the camera and says, you know, that we have not seen any proof of, of psychic involvement uh, or results 
in this test, very stringently controlled. The cameras go off. The guy's really disappointed because he didn't get anything on tape that day. But this is what happens with this phenomenon. Some days it works, some days it doesn't, right? All of a sudden, Masawaki Kyoto, with the cameras off, twists a spoon. And after he cut the camera feed, turned around and looked and saw that the spoon was bent with Masawaki's hands far away from it. And he's like, oh my God, we had it. And I screwed it up because he broke the camera feed and you can't have, nobody caught it. Everybody was focusing on the last words. And he went batshit crazy. I'm talking about everybody left. He was in the studio by himself and outside of it was his assistant, Steve, and myself. And we are listening to him howl and scream and yell. And he is, he's uh, flapping the curtains around in the studio and all of this. He's literally having a breakdown. This is harm. This is awful. The boys and the assistant to the BBC listen from the room next door as the one adult in the room is screaming like an animal and cursing the name of James Randi. And eventually the door opens. He looks down at his pants. There's a big white wet splotch there because he was going crazy in this moment, right? He had ejaculated just like I had a demonic ejaculation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Play that back. It's just like I had a demonic ejaculation. So he he got so mad, he ejaculated? (laughs) Hold on. No, this is too good. Play it again. Play it again. One more time. Just like I had a demonic ejaculation. The dude was so angry, he came in his pants. That's legit the funniest thing ever. I mean, for at least five minutes. At which point you realize... That he doesn't stop ranting and raving. This is a human who's been damaged. And it's Mike and Steve's fault. We caused this shit. We just gave this man, this grown frickin' BBC producer, a mental breakdown. Because of the bullshit that we convinced him that we could truly do. As it becomes clear that this producer isn't done. He begins hounding his assistant, and then Mike, who allows him into his hotel room. He's on his knees, like in a praying position, on the edge of my bed. I'm afraid to leave my room. I know Randy's here. I know that Randy is, he's coming into my room and messing with the footage while I'm here. And I know that Randy is evil and that we're really fighting the devil on this. And we're, I mean, uh, telling me all this crap about Randy materializing in his room and going after the video equipment and everything else. He is, again, and this is an hour or two later, he is completely, completely losing it on this. The assistant would not go back to her own hotel room and had to, had to sleep in Steve's room. All while this poor young female assistant is heroically safeguarded by spending the night in good old Steve's room. It was not an unpleasant task, by the way. 
In all seriousness, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. To see this sort of complete mental breakdown that you induced really put everything into perspective. It was after that night that Steve and I told Randy. This is a decision moment and a big one because you can only make this decision once. On one hand, they pick up the phone, they call James Randy, and they say, we're out. This ends tonight. They go back to their hotel room. They call Phillips. Just like all those nights they used to rat out the Mac lab, only this time they come clean to him. They own their deception, honestly, just like they always wanted to. They tell Phillips what they did and why they did it. He doesn't take it well. Neither does Randy. He's upset that they went so far down this road and didn't finish it. But they know they'll get a good magazine article out of it, so it's not a total loss. The magazine article gets attention, propels both of them to fame beyond all of their expectations. Soon they're on The Tonight Show, just like Geller was. And this time they can demonstrate just how easily our minds can be fooled. They're young and handsome and charming. Mike goes on to become a famous actor. Steve becomes a world-renowned magician. And after a few years, Phillips gets back in touch. He wishes Mike a happy birthday. Or at least, it could have happened. And maybe it did in some other fragment of our timeline. But it didn't happen. Not in this one. Or at least, not all of it. Mike and Steve do pick up the phone and they call Randy. Randy explains to them that the end is near. These boys are going to complete their quest to fix the world and do it live on a primetime NBC special. In a world with only three broadcast channels, one of them is going to tell the story of how stupid the Mac Lab is and how smart Mike and Steve are. It'll be capped off with a press conference, a press conference where Mike and Steve will stand shoulder to shoulder alongside Randy as they reveal to the assembled press that they're nothing but tricksters. They're simple magicians. That's where we are right now. Can you tell us how do you do it? I'll do it. Be quite honest. We cheat. And just like that, Mike and Steve are free. They're free from living a lie, but not from the consequences of what they've done. He says, is it true? And I say to him, well, what do you think? Please don't just show up at the Mac lab. There's a lot of really hurt feelings. You've been going for years, 108 hours. You're responsible for half a million dollars, and it comes out that you've been conned. And he says, well, these boys say they're lying now. How do we know that Randy didn't pay them off to lie? But Randy was, Randy was like a lot of showmen, and that is, it's got to be about me. There's not going to be any reconciliation with Phillips. Only their persistent worry that they've somehow ruined his life. But at least they changed the world, right? High fives! 
Or did they? The untangling of Project Alpha is complicated. Relationships are put to the test. Expectations slowly wilt. We unearth feelings buried under decades and weigh the sins of all involved in the final chapter of what just might be the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con is written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas, with additional production by Will Saddleberg. Original music by Carson Pace. Support us directly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And keep the world's greatest cons coming by heading on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. Get an ad-free feed, early access to information, and behind-the-scenes extras. Very special thanks go to Banachek and Mike Edwards for allowing us to tell their story. We greatly encourage you to see Banachek's new show, Mind Games, at the Strat Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Additional thanks go to George Slatter Productions, which, along with contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archive videos, made for the bulk of our research. Of course, you have questions, and we want to answer as many as we can, so hit us up and we'll respond at the end of the season. Write us to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. On the next episode, the bomb drops and everyone has to deal with the fallout. We sort through the wreckage, some of which still feels radioactive 40 years later. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.